Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Eric Verhugen. He's a Columbia professor uh, in the Department of Economics and School of International and Public Affairs. And we're going to talk about uh, his research area of industrial development and uh, microeconomic research on firms in developing countries. So, Eric, thanks for coming. How are you doing today? Very good. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, if you would uh, tell me about your research in your own words, what are you looking at uh, currently? Yeah, so the, the big question is, why are firms in developing countries uh, often not able to adopt technologies that have already been developed uh, in richer countries? And by technologies or products or way of, ways of doing business that, that firms in, in, in richer countries have often you know, figured out how to do already, but the firms in developing countries, for some reason, seem to have trouble um, you know, adopting them. Uh, so we can think about lots of different reasons for that. Uh, specifically, some of my work has been looking at uh, organizational barriers. And by that, I mean um, that, you know, organizations are complex organisms and not everybody in an organization has the same incentives. Uh, and there may be a conflict of interest, actually, between the owners of a, of a firm and the, and the people working there. Um, and so that can actually get in the way of adopting a technology that seems like a no-brainer, a technology that you would think um, you know, should be adopted and would just reduces waste and, and improve uh, the surplus that could then be split between, between the owners and the, and the workers. So I have a specific example of that, about that, which I'd be happy okay. to tell you about. Um, but, uh, sure. but we can also talk more generally. I mean, the general question about you know, why are firms, what's getting in the way? What are the barriers to, to, um, to adopting new, new and more advanced technology and products? And, and the, you know, that's important because firms being innovative and raising productivity um, is, is going to be a crucial component of, of growth in developing countries, as it is in, in, in rich countries as well. Well, it's important, I think, to look at specifics first, so it's understandable, and then get into more general notions. So a okay. specific example is great. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the specific example is we had a study for many years now. We've been studying a cluster of soccer ball producers in Sialkot, Pakistan, sort of a medium-sized city in, in, in Pakistan, which is the world center of hand-stitched soccer ball production. So there's a story there about how we got involved, um, but I'll leave that for, for a minute. Uh, the reason it was interesting to study is because, so first of all, it's a relatively large number of firms, 135 firms, producing a pretty standardized product. So, so most uh, soccer balls have the standard sort of design of hexagons and pentagons that you can imagine when you think of the, the classic like black and white uh, soccer ball design that has hexagons and pentagons. That's that's sort of 85, 90 percent of soccer balls still have that basic design. OK, so and that's still being put in all these 135 firms are basically being produced with a very similar technology, which I can talk about in more detail. But a key part, a key part of that uh, of the of the production process is cutting these uh, hexagons and pentagons, pentagons out of sheets of artificial leather. That's the, by far the most important, which is the exterior of the ball, which is then treated with some interior layers. That's by far the most ex- expensive input and it's the most important part of the production process. Okay, and so what made it possible to, to study this is we, by which I mean, I actually mean me and my wife, came up with a new technology, a new way of cutting pentagons out of these sheets of artificial leather 
that saved about 6% of the material. And so it was a significant, and it was just, just, um, just a reduction of waste. Uh, so, you know, hexagons is possible to cut in a way that doesn't waste very much. Pentagons is harder. And the way they were cutting pentagons was wasting all the material. Okay, so that's what made the project possible. And you we, came up with this yourself, it's more well, efficient way. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's okay. a, maybe a slightly generous way of saying it. So basically, uh, we tried to pay someone else to come up with an innovation. That person sort of failed and stopped showing up to work. I was feeling depressed. I started uh, you know, surfing around on the internet and found a, a video of a Chinese factory where they're also cutting pentagons for a slightly different part of the production process, also produce soccer balls. And so the innovation was just showing how people in, in Pakistan using the technology they were using could implement this idea that I saw in the Chinese factory. You deserve a pat on your, your hexagonal back, no problem. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. So go ahead. Uh, and, and my yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, also, I should mention my wife, Annalisa Guccini, is an architect. So that that was you know mm-hmm. what with the combination of this video from China and the fact that uh, uh, that my wife and I could sit down and you know on AutoCAD draw this up. That's what made it. That's what made it possible. Okay. Anyway. So okay. So it's more efficient than what? So it's more efficient. Okay. So then we ran an experiment and we said, okay, we'll give it out. All right, we'll give it out randomly to some, some firms and not to others, and we'll see what happens. And our original idea actually was that uh, this was such a good idea. And so obviously, you know, mathematically, uh, you know, mathematical improvement in, in how many pentagons you can get from a sheet, we thought it's going to be, you know, adopted very quickly by the people who give it to. And so our research project was mostly going to be about how the information spreads to other firms, okay, which is an important idea also in this literature is, you know, how, how this, you know, spillovers in, in knowledge spillovers, we call it spillovers in learning. Okay, but so we we gave it out to, to 35 firms and uh, and then we sat back and watched and, you know, 15 months later, well, and I should say we were reassured by, it was adopted by some firms, including by one very large firm, which is the second largest firm in town, which has more than a thousand employees and produces, I can now tell you, produced for Nike and other big brands. Um, and so, and they had adopted and basically were using it for all their cutting of Pentagons was using our new design. So we're pretty sure it was, it was working, but puzzlingly, um, very few firms, uh, re- relatively few firms of the 35 we gave it to actually had adopted it. So grand total of six uh, out of, actually out of all the 135, five of those were from 35 we gave it to, one firm, which is this large firm, found out from somebody else. Okay. So okay. that was sort of, the, that was the puzzle, right? It's like, why, if this is so good, you know, it's reducing costs, it's not changing any, requiring any other change in the production process. Why aren't people adopting Okay. And so that was, that was the result of our first, of our first experiment. So then we decided, we, we started talking to people and we said, okay, let's go, you know, ask why they didn't adopt this thing. Uh, and the number one answer we got when we did that was um, our workers don't like it. And in particular, our cutters don't like it. Okay. And so in retrospect, it's clear, but it, we, you know, wasn't obvious when we, when we were going in, but retrospect is clear. So these guys who are doing the cutting, so it's a, I should say a little bit more. It's it's a it's a metal die. They have to they move along by hand, and then they bring down a hydraulic press. They like press a button with their foot. It brings down a hydraulic press on top of this die and cuts typically two hexagons or two pentagons at a time. Right. So they, these guys move that along very quickly. So that's what they do all day. And the many of the guys have been have lots of experience for twenty years. They've been all they've been doing is cutting these hexagons and pentagons. Um, and their their compensation scheme was per piece. Basically, they're basically paid per ball. Okay, which is 20 hexagons and 12 pentagons, or, you know, they're paid, that's how, that's how they, that's how they earn money. And right, so, so they're they, incentivized to make as many as possible. Okay. They're incentivized to make as many as possible, as fast as possible. Right. And they're not incentivized to reduce waste. That's the key point, right? So, so they weren't, what our technology was actually doing was reducing the waste of this material, 
which is the most expensive thing. And so, you know, we have a research paper which goes into great detail about how it's just orders of magnitude, just like 10 times more savings from reduction of the waste than from the little bit of extra time it might take, you know, workers to use our, use our technology. But the workers were not getting any of that money, right? So the workers, it was just slowing them down. Okay. And so, and they clearly, they figured this out pretty quickly and decided, okay, we're going to try and resist this, you know, how, yeah, how, how we can. And they didn't, interestingly, they didn't, they didn't typically say, you know, this is a good technology, pay me a little bit more, I'll, I'll implement it. They typically said to the owners, it's a bad technology, right? It's not working. It's dangerous. You can't, these guys, these crazy people. Oh, so they they say that, right, to preserve their money. Yeah. They so they said that right to preserve their incomes basically. Yeah. And the and the you know so the owners on the one hand they had us coming in saying this will work. They had their employees you know coming along and saying it's not you know saying it's not going to work. Um, and uh, they believed their employees and not their you know long standing rather than us, which is not that surprising. But what the the owners didn't figure out that there was this potential conflict of interest that if somehow they could have figured out a way to make the employees whole basically to make sure that their incomes weren't going down then. They could have adopted the technology. Everybody would have been better off. But for whatever reason, that that well, information that information was you, you, you said some of the firms did adopt it. What was different about them that did adopt it versus the ones that had excuses and didn't? Yeah, yeah. So one is interesting. This very large firm that I mentioned of a you know a thousand or more workers, um, they were one of the few firms in town that was not paying piece rates. Uh, there's an interesting backstory to that too. They were paying basically fixed wages, like for a month, you know, they, a monthly salary essentially for workers. You know, so it wasn't tied, the, the workers' wages wasn't tied to how many pieces they were they were producing. And the reason for that is precisely that this big firm was producing for Nike, and Nike had, uh, you know, publicized basically because of you know uh, labor rights scandals in the past or labor condition scandals in the past. Nike had publicized its, its, set, its who was who was applying for it and said any supplier has to conform to the letter of local labor law, and the only way this factory could guarantee that their workers were going to get the paid the minimum wage in Pakistan, which many firms were not respecting, was by you know paying a fixed monthly wage instead of having this piece rate system. And so those guys in that factory, which is called Silver Star, uh, the 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 uh, the cutters didn't have a disincentive to adopt, and so that was arguably you know what we argue is the reason why they were so quick to adopt. Um, so that's that's a key story, right? So that their their compensation scheme was different. Um, so there were a few other firms that adopted that just figured out that you know they were, they, their their workers were a little bit more honest with them, or they figured out oh by the way you know I can see that these, my workers' salaries are going to go down. Let me you know give them a give them a bonus for the month, or let me you know incentivize them in some other way to adopt this technology, and that ended mm-hmm. up working. Right. So it's if there okay. were, uh, I mean, in some so you ways, you can't just uh, at least in places like that, you can't just give them a new technology and expect that they'll be happy and use it. There's other things that come along with it that need to be addressed. Exactly. 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 So there's uh, there needs to be there may need to be organizational change to go along with the technological change. Right. So that, the, okay. you know, you have to ch- I mean, I guess that's a somewhat uh, you know economics way of saying it. But, yeah, you need to you need to get the incentives right for the for the employees in order for the you know, the adoption to be successful. Well, these are good lessons. Okay. So what, what, what was next? Yeah. So, I mean, so one is I, you know, we, we didn't talk to people. This is what they said. It sort of became clear to us what was happening with the contracts. We actually did in a second experiment where we um, gave, we said, we're going to give a bonus. Okay. So we're going to sort of mimic what an employer might do to try to, you know, incentivize workers to adopt the technology. So we're going to go to half of the firms we originally gave the technology to. And we say, we're going to give, a, you know, a, a, a bonus of a month's salary to your cutter. If he, and it's almost all men here working, if he can demonstrate in front of you that this technology is working in a month. 
Okay, and that wasn't very much money for the firms. That was like, you know, $150 essentially for most cutters, between $120 and $150. And so we paid a third up front and we said, we'll come back in a few weeks and you know, we'll pay you the rest if you can demonstrate in front of all of us that this is work. And so that uh, solved the problem actually, it turned out. So the workers were excited about that. You know, they get an extra month's salary. So everyone was excited to, to take this test and demonstrate the technology worked. And then we got, so we got a statistically significant, you know, set of the firms that where we did that second experiment ended up adopting the technology. Okay. And so anyway, so that's, that, 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 that was our argument that even though it's a small amount of money, what this, what this small bonus did is it led the workers to share the information with the firm that the technology was good. And then the firm saw on their own that, oh yes, okay. So that's in our interest to adopt this technology. Um, and so that's sort of a, in a way that second experiment serves to demonstrate that this organizational barrier that we'd hypothesized about the conflict of interest, because the employment contracts of that, that really was what, what was holding things back. Um, so okay. that's the, the anyway. So that's the, that's that story. We're we're uh, we're going it's on. A cool story. You like yeah, the story? Cool story? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the well, it sheds light on on a number of different issues. Um, so one is that you know this obvious thing is that workers need to see the benefits to adoption of new technology in order to to you know enthusiastically or in order to to not to block it and to and to make it happen. Um, so and that can happen in various different ways. You know, it could be an actual like payment contract, or it could be you know, a general sense that, you know, credibly that the owner, if the owner, the company does well, I'm going to do well. Um, also, even if it's not a very, you know, it's not a very direct payment. So that's one issue, you know, obviously, uh, I think the thing that comes out of it. Um, there's another, there's, a, there's another interesting point too, I think, which is that there's a sort of um, inertia that happens, I think, uh, in, in labor contracts. So basically, like before we showed up, I think that the piece rate contracts that almost all the firms were paying probably were the best way to motivate workers and get them to work hard and, you know, and, and work quickly and be, be productive was through this piece rate thing. And it was only like when we showed up with this new technology that it was revealed that that standard set of contracts wasn't uh, what, you know, wasn't optimal or was getting in the way of innovation. Right. And so that yeah. I, th I so I think that's interesting. Right. In the sense that the we, we tend to think that there might be like the best way of organizing things, but that best way of organizing things is going to depend on, you know, how many new ideas are out there or what's the potential for innovation. And that, and that if you want to, you know, actually want to be able to adopt some of these new ideas, then you might need to have a more flexible or more, you know, a different way of paying people than if what you're trying to do is just maximize output, just trying to get as much as much produced as possible. So I think that's I think that's sort of a larger, larger point. Too. So they're yeah they're trying to maximize output and productivity. Um, is it as simple as thinking of new ways to improve productivity, but running them by the workers to see the potential pitfalls, or is there a lot more to it than that? So if you yeah, so that's interesting. So in this case, though, I think just running it by the workers wouldn't have helped, right? Because okay, well, right? Because the workers, if they figured if they figured out that actually my salary is going to go down. Uh, then even though they may know that it that would work, they're not necessarily going to share that information. Right. Yeah, that makes, makes sense, sense. Right. Yeah. So you have to, so the, you know, the, the, the owner, whatever the firm has to understand that that's happening. Right. And maybe they need to have basically what I, you know, like, like a big point, if I were an owner, I would try and build in, build in mechanisms that, you know, profit sharing or some sort of, it could be explicit profit sharing or some sort of implicit profit sharing so that workers are confident that if the firm does well, then, you know, they'll get ahead too. And so then they're going to be more likely to participate in the, in the process of innovation and, and support it rather than, than impede it. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Well, if, if companies want more productivity, you know, that's great. But I mean, more productivity should mean, even if you're 
unequal about sharing it a bit more for the workers. More productivity should should you'd, you'd expect that to to raise wages or to have a bit more for workers? Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, I even mean, if you only give ten percent of the benefit, you're still getting you know ninety percent of the benefit. If the numbers work, the workers should be getting more, a little bit more. They should be happy and willing to implement it and not fight you on it. I mean, why is it? You know, I'm I'm not there in the factory setting doing this, but I mean, is that so hard to do, or is that uh, you know what's why isn't that not done? Why is it not happening? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, in this case, I, I, so I agree with you, right? That it doesn't have to be even, you know, the, the, I, I, well, my sense is that workers like most people are going to be paying attention to like, what's the bottom line, what's the bottom line for them. them. And so a little bit of profit sharing, I think would go a long way. Um, and so I think you're right. Like a 90, even a 90, 10 split in this case probably would have been sufficient to get the workers on board and get them, you know, supporting the process. So now why didn't that happen? So that's, that's interesting, right? So, so we know in reality, that wasn't what was going to happen. The worker salaries actually would have gone down if they'd adopted this thing, or at least it would have gone down in the short run while they're getting, getting up to speed. Eventually they'll they'll be back. They got up to speed, and so they weren't slowed down. But they didn't know that ahead of time. Uh, so why isn't that happening? Uh, so one is I think that you know the employers didn't necessarily understand that that was that you know that that was the issue. They didn't understand that they needed to do profit sharing, um, and so maybe that's part of what I'm hoping that you know the, the point of this research will make clear to people is that you might be more innovative if you know, to the extent that you're you're doing more profit sharing, and so showing that sort of in a very particular clean uh, uh, clean case. I guess another reason is that some some owners told us, um, you know, yeah, I could I could have changed, you know, tweaked the contract or changed the payment scheme or something like that, but I can't go around changing my payment scheme every week. You know that there's there's it's costly to do that basically. Uh, you know, I don't want next week when they you know they've got something else that they want, they're going to want to come want to some change or they you know they're going to want you know, uh, yeah, that that every time I turn around, I, I don't want to have to be dealing with a new. Uh, you know, a new situation where I have to design a new a new organizational arrangement, right? And so, so they felt like it, it opened the door to endless change. They opened the door to endless change. I guess that's right. You know, there's basically a norm, right, in this in Seattle, in this town, which is you know, you pay a piece rate. This is how you do it. This is how we've always done it. And so somehow, if you you know that that somehow it would be costly to change that if you get away from that norm and you don't longer have this you know, sort of focal point where everyone agrees this is sort of a normal, fair thing to do. Um, and so that, it could be, that could be part of it too, you know, that, that, uh, that, that there's that cost involved. And I think coupled with that is that the owners were just skeptical that the technology was going to be good. Okay. So they get people coming, knocking on their door all the time, telling them they have some new thing, newfangled thing that, that, that's going to change their life. Um, and they're typically probably rightfully kind of skeptical of that. Right. And so here they thought the potential benefit and, and they didn't know, you know, often the owners aren't actually the ones doing the, actually doing the work, doing the cutting in this case, or actually producing the balls. And so they may not have a good sense of, of whether this technology would actually work. Right. So then, so I think what was happening is that the owners were weighing off these you know, potentially small benefits of this technology, right? They, or they basically perceive the, the benefits to be, to be small against this known and non-trivial cost of tweaking, you know, messing with contracts at, and, distort, you know, disrupting the norms that have, that have been in place for a long time in their factory. And so that, and they basically saw that, that the cost, they thought the cost outweighed the benefits, right? That they, they didn't, this potentially small gain didn't seem to outweigh the cost of, uh, of mess, you know, potentially messing up the, this employment contract. Well, how how much of this is cultural? cultural unique to Pakistan or cultural unique to cultures where authority is highly, you know, held in high esteem. Yeah. Good question. Uh, Have you so evaluated I, that? I mean, it's just something to look at. Like I've, yeah, you know, yeah. I've read books on like uh, plane crashes and, you know, cultures in which you never challenge authority, the 
you know, the plane crash was more likely right. to happen and, you know, stuff like that. Right, right, right. That was the Korean, I remember that Korean Airlines crash in San Francisco, right, that they, um, yep. the people said that. Uh, yeah, so we did think about that a little bit. I mean, I think there are some cultural specificities uh, so that the, you know, one might have expected the workers to to tell, you know, to kind of negotiate about this and say to their uh, say to the owners, yeah, listen, we think this might work. We'll try it, you know, you know uh, pay us more or, you know, pledge to pay us more if it turns out the technology works, something like that. But, and that conversation didn't happen. And I think that is partly because of there's such an extreme hierarchy, right? That, that uh, the workers just felt like it wasn't their place to be, be suggesting ideas about how to organize the factory. And so that, you know, so then it, it, it didn't happen. So there's, there's some sort of cultural specificity to that. But I think, you know, I think this idea that workers have information that they don't share because they don't necessarily have an incentive to share it. I think that's pretty broad. I mean, and so there's nothing like we have a little economic theory in our paper where, you know, everyone's just being rational and everyone's just pursuing their own self-interest. And so there's no, there's no, there's no cultural factors um, coming to play. And, and so, and I think actually that can happen in lots of places. Uh, I have a famous, well, I have an example in my head. There was a, I mean, it's now, you know, a bunch of years ago, maybe 30 years ago already, but, uh, or 25 years ago, there's a book called Rivet Head about a guy working on uh, assembly line in, 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 uh, in Michigan. And basically saying how these guys on assembly line in Michigan would figure out all these ways to make their life easier, make the job go quicker, right? But then rather than telling the employer that that's what was going on, they'd like, you know, they, they do their job in half the time and then they could take longer breaks or even sometimes they have one guy cover two jobs and one, the other guy could go fishing, this sort of thing. Right. And so that sort of information just wasn't getting shared. And I, and I think that happens everywhere. I think that happens in the U.S. I think it happens in you know, any context you give me. I bet, I bet that I could find examples like this. So uh, now that you figure this part of it out, what's next? What, what other piece of the puzzle do you want to figure out? Yeah. Um, so we are continuing to work with these guys. Uh, I mean, I think one, uh, you know, one piece is, um, apart from the organizational issues, is this issue about knowledge spillovers, right? So does, does you know, once one firm has figured out that this technology works, do we see it, that knowledge spreading to, to other firms? And we have seen that a little bit. This big firm that I mentioned, the Silver Star, uh, is a pretty influential firm in town. And so we've, we've noticed that several other firms have started using this, die, this, this new way of cutting pentagons, this new die, as a result of having it been Silver Star. And so that, I think, um, so that has a lot to do with, sorry, the, these sort of spillovers are kind of the basis for, more, for most arguments that you want to do kind of industrial policy, that there should be some sort of government intervention in order to stimulate innovation. So the idea, the idea there is that, you know, a firm, if it's generating knowledge for other firms, isn't necessarily going to take that into account in its bottom line, right? It only cares about its own profits and not about the, the, the knowledge it generates for other firms. Um, so and so then that an individual firm is going to invest less just on its own in innovation that might be best or optimal for the society as a whole, okay? In that situation, then there's an argument that maybe you'd want to have some sort of government intervention in order to promote this this. Uh, you know, this activity that leads to innovation. And so, and that are, that whole argument depends on there being these knowledge spillovers, but the knowledge spillovers are hard to see and hard to document. And so one thing we're trying to do is to either in this context or other contexts, document that those sorts of knowledge spillovers are important and try and get a sense of, of how large they are. Have you observed longitudinally what happens in an industry when, you know, like uh, the one that you're, I mean, the mini, I guess, improvement you're creating or the significant improvement you've created, how long, how long has it been since the, um, the six firms have implemented it. And if another year goes by, do you think that more firms will implement it and eventually become the standard? Yeah. So that's a, that's a good question. Uh, so now it's been, we've been working with these firms for a long time. So it's probably been, 
you know, five years since, since those six firms. Um, and I keep, you know, people, in, when they talk about technology diffusion, often talk about these S curves, like you're in the, the low part of the S, kind of flat part of the S for a long time. And then you have a very steep part where almost everybody adopts. And then you have, a, you know, the top again, there's a slow, slow process until you get to, you get to 100%. And, and I feel like we've been on this low part of this S curve for a long time. And in fact, now we still have fewer than 20 firms in town. So we, we got an uptick with our, with our experiment. Um, and we had a few more, as I mentioned, that, that copied basically Silver Shark, a big firm. But it hasn't gone, you know, it hasn't gone viral, as they say, uh, you know, in this town. So lots of firms have not. And I think, I, I believe basically that our story is still in place. Like when we're not actively there, fig, you know, showing firms that there's this conflict of interest with their workers and helping them to resolve it, that they, and it wasn't, you know, this, this technology made a difference about 1% of cost. It was a small thing, as you, as you mentioned. And so they, you know, I think lots of firms just, just didn't do it. They, uh, either they weren't convinced, it was too, you know, too small a, you know, a benefit or uh, it was just too much, too much hassle. And so it, so it hasn't happened. Um, so I keep expecting, you know, to be on the steep part of the S curve, but it, to be honest, it hasn't happened yet. And, and at this point, it may not, may not happen. I don't, you might you know, have to do some uh, marketing type stuff, like call it the Verhugen method and say it's from a very famous, you know, <laughs> Dutch designer and you've gotten it, you know, it's, it's now here in Pakistan and maybe it'd be adopted more, you know? Yeah, 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 that's right. Uh, we've got that comment, people, you know, we did very little of that marketing. We just sort of dropped, you know, gave the technology and then stepped back and watched what happened. But, but, uh, but maybe it does require, does require that sort of uh that, that sort of marketing process. Um, it's surprising that it yeah, would, it but, it, but it might. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure it would help. My my wife actually asked why we didn't try to patent and make money off of this thing. Um, and we decided not to. Anyway, long story. But but uh, uh, you know, it wasn't. We're in this for the for the research, not for the not for the money making. But if I, you know, if it were a larger, I think if it were a larger, uh, you know, more valuable technology in a way, then then maybe it would be worth it to do that and try and you know try and put some resources into advertising and, and shopping it around and that sort of thing. Well, you're, you're helping people by doing it if it's done right. So maybe continue to find more improvements. And, you know, I, it, another thing to study is, so if you improve some of the players in an industry 1%, maybe that doesn't really do much. But if you're able to um, improve them 10% now over a period of time, that would be a very big advantage and it would distort the market a lot. And the other firms that didn't pick it up would you know, fall very behind. So you would, you know, hopefully in a good way, move the market and change it. Yeah, absolutely. 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 Yeah. As you say, I mean, I think we need a bigger, you know, a bigger technology or, you know, 10% would be more than 1%, but you know, it's still uh, profit margins are about 8% in this industry. They're pretty, pretty tight, you know, between lower than 10%, I'd say on average. And so we still would have thought that, you know, this was enough that, that, that firms would, would respond, but it wasn't, I think you're right that it wasn't quite large enough that it would actually move the whole industry to the point where everybody who didn't adopt this thing, um, you know, would be going out of business. And so therefore they have to adopt. Um, but you're right. I mean, I think that, you know, this, this is a particular te technology, but I want to, I want to study other technologies and other people have studied other technologies that um, where you do see, you know, they have, have a bigger effect on their industry in a way. And so you do see everybody adopting and everyone has to adopt. Otherwise they, you know, they go out of business. Um, and so that's kind of how, how tech, how, you know, creative destruction, as they call it, Schumpeter called it, um, you, know, you get a new, new idea and it's going to, some people who are, who are going to adopt are going to benefit and some people who, who don't adopt uh, die out. And, and so that's sort of a natural part of the process. And which I think is good as part of the development process. And we need to try and make that happen as much as possible. Um, well, what's I don't your have, goal from here? What, what do you want to figure out next? Uh, yeah, good question. So we, we do have a, we've continued to work with, with, uh, with a set of firms. Um, so we have one project where we're basically trying to figure out, um, 
what's the role of, or how do they respond to import tariff reductions? Or, you know, if you, if you increase the availability of imports, um, how, do, how do firms respond to that? And, and the reason why it's interesting in this context is this artificial leather I was talking about. It's um, all the high quality varieties of that artificial leather come from abroad. They come from Japan or from Korea. Um, typically, or, and from or from China, um, and the, the the lower quality rec, the lower quality artificial leather comes from come from Pakistan. And so, what we basically did, we ran an experiment where we subsidized the the cost of the high quality stuff, the high quality artificial uh, leather, which is called Rexin. And we're seeing how how firms respond. Um, and so, what basically what's looking, and partly we did that because we thought there might be an interaction with this our new technology, with our Pentagon's t- cutting technology, which is going to be more you know the more valuable the artificial leather, the more va- the more valuable our technologies. And so we haven't found an interaction there, but we have found, which also we're kind of expecting or, you know, hoping to find, we have found that basically when you, you, um, higher quality imported inputs become more available, or in this case, cheaper, what firms do is they start upgrading on lots of dimensions. So they, not just their artificial leather, but they also use higher quality latex as this sort of glue that they use to, to glue the, 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 the artificial leather to, to layers of cotton or, or, or uh, polyester. They use a higher quality bladder. They use higher quality, lots of other stuff. Um, and then they, and they sell that to richer countries. So basically what happened, we said to these guys, we'll, we'll subsidize this high quality material. And so they went out and got contracts to sell the guys in Germany or sell the guys in France and in, in, uh, often in Europe um, and upgraded in general on lots of dimensions. And so that's kind of an interesting phenomenon, right? That you can have this generalized effect um, of, of upgrading uh, in response to uh, essentially something that's mimicking a, a tariff reduction, right? So that seems quite important. That why is, you know, when you talk about you know, why are tariffs, there's lots of reasons why, why tariffs might be bad, but one of them um, is that it, it reduces the availability of these of imported inputs, which in a country like Pakistan typically means higher quality inputs from you know from from richer countries, and that in itself can block some of this process of learning and upgrading and innovating that that we're talking. About. Um, oh, I see what you mean. You see what I mean? Yeah. So it's so it's sort yeah. of a it's it's a it's a reason why uh, trade liberalization would be would be good in the development of, of Pakistan. Um, you know, another. So do you want to oh. do you want to move on to other topics, or do you want to flesh this one out more? Like, why don't you go to oh. Vietnam and work with a factory that makes something else and do the same experiment and see what happens in it or something. Yeah. 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 No, I I have. Okay. So I, so I do have a bunch of different projects. I should say one is with happens also being Pakistan and Sialkot with surgical goods is the other big industry in this town. So we're, and we're there, we're trying to figure out, you know, are there ways to incentivize innovation? Like can a, essentially we want to run something like a, 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 like a, innovation contest, which, which you might, a government might actually be able to do to say, okay, we don't know what the next big, big idea is, but somehow we're, we're going to give out prizes if people can come up with an, with an idea, which is actually, which is actually good. And in this case, we'll, we'll, we'll evaluate it by, um, we'll judge whether an idea is good by whether it's actually the firms are able to successfully sell in the United States for this, this, this surgical goods. That's something that we're, that's an idea we're thinking of. We haven't yet implemented. Um, so that's one idea. I guess generally what I'd say what I'm working on is, um, is also this question about how do you do industrial policy, um, especially in settings where the government may be low, what we call low capacities, and the sort of doesn't have, isn't very particularly knowledgeable about the sectors, maybe that are that are you know the firms that are that are producing in the country, and maybe you know there's issues of corruption or there's issues of you know people are just not very not, not very high functioning bureaucracy, and so how do you you know how could you do industrial policy in that sort of setting? Um, and so in Tunisia, I'm working on a, on a project which isn't specific to a sector, but it's about, um, you know, essentially what I call pay for performance in export promotion. So lots of countries want to want to promote exports. 
that, but I agree with that. Actually, it probably has some salutary effects on, on the economy. Uh, and the question is how best to do that. And what lots of countries do is they just, they would give something like a matching grant, right? Where the, the firm says, I'm going to spend X amount of money on, you know, on, on stuff that I think is going to help me export. And the government says, okay, I'll pay part of that X, part of that thing you're going to, you're going to spend. But there's no, there's no additional reward. There's not much incentive after that for the firm to actually export because it's not conditioned on export. And so we're trying to, uh, we have, you know, this is a, a career that's ongoing and hopefully pretty soon we'll be able to, in a position to write up results where uh, the, the firms actually get a larger benefit if, um, they're able to export. Okay, so so it's pay for performance. We'd, we'd say in export promotion, uh, where you know it doesn't just to pay. You don't you get the money from the government not just if you if you actually spend money, but if you are able to to sell in 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 uh, in, in this case in, in new countries. Um, so that's one thing. That's sort of a flavor of a of a of another of a project that I'm that I'm working on. Uh, you can tell me, uh, yeah. So I can t- I'm happy to tell you tell you more. We're, we're you know, in Bangladesh, we want to work on, a, you know, a new type of energy efficient motor for stitching machines and see, you know, what are the barriers that are there in terms of adopting that technology. Are these all your creations or your wife's creations, or is it just, you know, the technology is there? You want to bring it to Bangladesh, for instance. Yeah, yeah. In this case, it's it's uh, no, it's not mine. It's not it's not my wife's. Uh, in in this case, in Bangladesh, it's something that's known. It's a it's a kind it's a kind of motor that is included on the the most recent generation of stitching machines, um, and that wasn't included on the earlier generation of stitching machines, but that actually can be used. It's easy to sort of unplug it from one type of machine and plug it into a, a different type of machine, and it reduces costs, reduces energy usage. Um, and so that's that's the piece that's sort of not broadly known. And so that's the thing that we're gonna gonna look at. So it's not it's not new to you know it's not something new to the world, but it is just something new in this particular context of these guys. In, in no, I thought you were like some mad inventor, you know, <laughs> plus economist, and you go around the world, you know, secretly bequeathing your inventions to to people to help their lives. No, it's just that it's unfortunately not very replicable as a as a research strategy. This thing in, in Pakistan I was sort of lucky that it happened, and I, I don't see it. Uh, I don't see it, you know, happening 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 again. Um, well, very cool, Eric. You're doing really cool work. What What's the best way for people to find more out about you and about your uh, economics research work? Yeah, I mean, I guess you can go to uh, my website or just just Google me. I'm the only, there's not very many Verhugans um, in the world, so it's Eric E R I C and then Verhugan V as in Victor E R H O O G E N. So Google that, you'll find my my website at Columbia. There's some videos there. You can see some videos of the of soccer ball production in Pakistan. Um, also on Twitter, it's you know at Eric Verhugan, spelled in the same way. Uh, although I'm, I'm not super active there, but every once in a while you can see stuff that I that I send out. Very good, Eric. Thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Okay, thanks very much for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.